It's been a long time since I've done this, so, uh, so go easy on me. And I think there's a bit of a conspiracy here as well, that I've not done this for ages, and then I've got a passage that there are a couple of red flags about. Um, yeah, so, I've lost my place already. No, don't worry. Uh, if, you're, um, yeah, if you're interested in talking with me after about those things, do come and talk to me. Uh, one thing I would say is that if you ever get a passage in the Bible that says, oh, we're not sure about something here. Uh, one of the quick checks you can do is to say, does this kind of match up with the story of the rest of the Bible? Uh, and personally, I think the passage that, that Claire read to us shows Jesus you know, at one of his best. I'm not sure that's a pro- in proper English, but it shows Jesus in really great light when it comes to dealing with people, no matter who they are, no matter what their past is, and no matter what their motives are. And I've also heard it said that a good talk should have three points, and I've got four. Uh, So either I've gone too far, or you get 33.3% rounded bonus this afternoon from me. But like I said, go easy on me. Uh, If you've got your Bibles, we're going to jump into John chapter 8, or John 7.53. And at REC, we believe that the Bible is precious. We believe it deserves our attention and our will to change in light of what God, by his spirit, has given us. So to that end, I pray that this afternoon, God would use my prep and my words to change us to become followers of Jesus, or to become better followers of Jesus. So, hopefully you found it. Uh, And as we engage with this account today uh, of Jesus, we're going to try and uncover two tracks of humanity Um, And hopefully the slides will help us with this when we get there. One of them is the Jewish leaders, and the other one is Jesus. Uh, And this will hopefully help us build up a picture of Jesus that is so spectacular that you will engage with the text for the same reason that John wrote it, which is, he says, that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you may have life in his name. So, hopefully you've found John 8 by now. Uh, So, the first couple of verses that that were read to us. They all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts. So, this is the evening before Jesus meets with the woman and the Jewish leaders. So, why are we interested in, in this? And I think it's important for us here to get an idea of what our key players spend their time doing. Why? Well, let me ask you this question. Where does your mind wander when you're not busy with kids or work or, or pets or church or caring for loved ones? Where does your mind go and kind of tick over on repeat? Well, that place or that thing that you give time to letting yourself dwell on, there's a reasonable chance that that could be something that's a bit of an idol for you and for me. We give it loads of time and it gives nothing back. Well, here in the passage, we see the direction of the hearts of Jesus and the Jewish leaders. It's not totally explicit in the passage, but I think we can take a pretty good guess. It's clear that Jesus went up the Mount of Olives, um, a place that he would often go. Why? He would go there to pray, a place that he could be with his father and talk to him. Jesus spent the night in communion with his father on the Mount of Olives. 
So if this were a film that we were watching, if this passage was made into a film, there'd be some nice kind of, you know, not jolly music, but nice kind of major chords being played in the background as Jesus is praying to his father. We would then switch in an instant like that. The chords would change to minor. The cameras would darken and we would look to the Jewish leaders. What are they up to during the night? Like I say, this is not explicit in the passage, but I'm going to suggest that the place their hearts and minds wander when they're not busy is to a place of jealousy and hatred of Jesus. They possibly run through scenarios in their mind that they try to build up to try and catch Jesus out. Their idol is themselves. It's their position in society. It's not looking to Jesus as the Messiah. They're totally self-interested. And it was so extreme that in this case, they would conspire to catch a young woman in the act of adultery. And I don't think it's a coincidence. Okay? I don't think it's a coincidence uh, that they just happened upon this woman and witnessed the act by chance. I think it's much more likely that, that it was co- they caused the situation to occur somehow. So while Jesus is up on the mountain praying to God his Father in heaven, these religious leaders, the equivalent of our elders, are plotting and peeping through keyholes, conspiring together to generate a challenge that Jesus cannot possibly wriggle out of. So the first two words that I want to put up on the screen. Oh, sorry, that's the title of our sermon today. What about this, Jesus? That's important. Sorry, let's just flick back a second, Mo. I'll get you to do some work today. What about this, Jesus? Check the air. Remember the way we say that. Next slide. So the first two things we see are the Jewish leaders are, are conspiring together and Jesus is in communion with his father. That kind of sets the scene for us. The Jewish leaders are conjuring up a horrendous situation for a young girl to secure their place in society where Jesus is praying to his father. There's a group seeking destruction and Jesus is enjoying God. Okay. Uh, next few verses in John as we open this up. So if you look down, uh, oh, we'll go back because actually it doesn't help if we just read what I've written there. Um, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So as we move to this, sec- this section and through the passage, I don't want you to think that I or Jesus in this, this passage is making light of adultery as a sin. Sex and sexual sin were in the top three things that Jesus taught about during his earthly ministry. Jesus is the one who explained that the seventh commandment in its truest way. When God spoke to Moses and said, do not commit adultery, it wasn't just the physical act of having sex with someone that you're not married to. Jesus clarifies it for us and takes it further and says to look at somebody lustfully is adultery. To think lustful thoughts about someone is adultery. Jesus is not light on sin. Remember that because we'll probably come back to it later. I missed a whole paragraph there as I casually threw my sheet away. So picture the scene. A big crowd is gathered. Jesus is sat teaching. He wasn't being lazy. 
This was just how they did it at the time. It would be a bit like this setting. I would be sat down, you would be stood up, the crowd would be bigger, and the preaching would be much better. And into the mix come the religious leaders. You would have known who they were uh, by what they wore, how they held themselves. There was no need for introductions. And presumably, they have brought this young girl from where they'd caught her. Ashamed, weak, defenceless, humiliated, crying. And they place her in front of Jesus and in front of the crowd like a, a lifeless piece of evidence for the prosecution. They don't care about her. She's not a person to them. She's just a pawn in the game that they're playing. An object. She's something to be used, not someone to be loved and cared for. They show her absolute contempt. And the result of this humiliation would have been earth-shattering for this girl. Public exposure without trial. Guilty because they say she's guilty. How could she face anyone ever again in a culture of shame? No mention of the man, is there? I don't, don't mean to be crude, but there must have been a man involved. Um, but they seem to have forgotten about him, don't they? Now, I don't want to stretch this, but I think it's worth reflecting just for a moment or two for us. Um, and not to this extent, but it, I think it can be something we can be guilty of. And I can be guilty of this, forgetting that, that people are people and should be treated as such. In our homes, in work or in church even, yeah, I'm sometimes guilty of this. I... I throw things in the washing basket, assuming that the magic washing machine will wash them and put them back in the drawer, forgetting that actually there's a human being that's involved in that who I need to be caring for. At work, I can assume that the people are there to, to make me look good. Or in church, sometimes you might think, oh, wouldn't it be good if we had some of those sort of people as opposed to the ones we've got? You know, people that fill the seats and make me feel like I'm part of a vibrant, growing church. Forgetting that all of those people who are filling our seats are, are image bearers of God. So if you're here this afternoon, if you're joining us online, we love you. And we want to get to know you more. And we want to share Jesus with you so that you may know him and you may make him known. It's so easy and we need to be on the lookout for it in us, not just in others. So, there we have the scene. The religious leaders, very pleased with themselves. I totally imagine them all sort of high-fiving, slapping each other on the back. You know, they think they've, they've got everything sorted. And then a broken sinner, on show for everyone to see. And all eyes are on Jesus. What will he do? We have to slightly jump out of this, uh, this section to get his initial response. And it's unusual. But in some ways, that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus is the master of the unusual response. Later, the text tells us that they keep going on and on. Yeah. What does Jesus do? He drops to the floor and starts writing in the dust. Just like that. And what does he write? We don't know. Should we take a guess? No. What does the act achieve? Well, what are we bothered about when we read it? What does he write? Why does he do it? But where is, where is our attention? Where is the attention of the people sat in the room? It's no longer on the girl, is it? All eyes are on Jesus. They're on the word of God. And I'm not suggesting that Jesus is down there 
writing out the scripture. But Jesus is the living, breathing word of God. So when he speaks now, people are going to listen. So it better be good. Jesus' act here, I think, is one of care for the girl. He draws all the eyes away from her and onto himself. So our second point of contrast here is one of contempt and care. The the Jewish leaders treated the girl with contempt, whereas Jesus cares for her. He draws all the attention away from her and onto him. So the next couple of verses, uh, five through nine. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? That's where the title for the sermon comes from. What about this, Jesus? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus bent down, started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Now now we come to the heart of the passage. This is the reason why they'd come to Jesus in the first place. They'd come with a self-serving motive. Their desire was to trap him. This whole charade was concocted so that they could ask Jesus a question to which, if he answers yes, he gets in trouble. And if he answers no, he gets in trouble. Brilliant, they must have thought. Another high five to a Pharisee mate. I bet they were really pleased with themselves when they came up with the plan too. All we need to do is trick a young girl into sleeping with someone she's not married to, parade her through the streets, bringing shame on her and her family, land her at Jesus' feet, and ask him what we do with her. What some people will do to cling to power can be genuinely awful. So the question, the title of our sermon, what about this, Jesus? The law commands the stoning of an unmarried woman who commits adultery. So in Deuteronomy... 22, if you, were, if you want to turn there, feel free. If you don't, don't. Um, Deuteronomy 22, verse 20, it reads like this. Uh, However, if the charge is true and no proof of the young woman's virginity can be found, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of the town shall stone her to death. She has done an outrageous thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge evil from among you. Oh, but it goes on, doesn't it? If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. You must purge the evil evil from Israel. If a man happens uh, to meet in a town a virgin pledged to be married and he sleeps with her, you shall take them both to the gate of that town and stone them to death. There's definitely something. They've got an idea. They're kind of right, aren't they? This is what the law says. They've forgotten the bloke again. He's nowhere to be seen. So they've got, they've got a kind of legal justification for their question. We found this 
this young woman who's committed adultery. It says we should stone her. What should we do? What's Jesus going to say? Stone her or not? So what's the trap? Well, if Jesus says stone her, what's that going to do to his message of forgiveness and redemption? But if he says stoner as well, they might they can go to the authorities and say, this bloke is trying to stir up a rebellion because they didn't have the authority to do it without a proper trial and all those sorts of things. Whereas if he says, don't stoner, he's suddenly the anti-Moses person, isn't he? He doesn't believe the scripture, they can say. He doesn't think we should do what Moses says. Like I said, they, they wouldn't have civil permission without having to go through loads of interrogation, get their stories straight, make sure there was no uh, yeah, things in their accounts that, that weren't matching up. Unfortunately for the girl, it's a totally mute point because it doesn't matter to her, does it? She's already been publicly disgraced, whether she's guilty or not. Although I think it's fairly safe for us to assume her guilt in this situation. So what will Jesus say? Let's enact the more of loaves. I did that when I was reading it through earlier. Not the more of loaves. Let's see if we can do that again. We'll cut that in the edit. Um, let's enact the law of Moses. Let's grab some stones, folks. Does he say that? Or no, this is not right. That's not what Moses meant, or worse. He said that, but he was wrong. So, here is when, surrounded by constant questioning, the pushing of the leaders for an answer, that Jesus starts writing in the earth. There's something almost cartoon-like about it. It sort of is down there. And he just pops back up, almost with Leo, ready to declare something. And he does. He pops back up and he says, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. What an absolute gut punch to the Jewish leaders. He's not said yes or no. He's not said it's wrong. He's not said it's right. He accepts the truth of the situation, the words of the law, and then commands the challengers to check themselves first. Then he goes back to writing in the dust again, out of the way. Again, we've got no idea what he wrote or why, but he's in total control of the room. His actions enable his counter-challenge to hit home without them experiencing him kind of staring them in the eye and piercing kind of into their minds. We don't know how long he was writing for, but however long, it was long enough. Because when he stands back up, he's left alone with the woman. The leaders have left. Why? Because they'd experienced a dose of realism. They'd looked at themselves in the mirror and seeing the horror that faced them of their own sin. What had they done? They were were not fit to be judges of the situation or of any situation if they could act in the way they had done. Their response was to slip away. And I imagine doing a lot of soul searching or some depressed crying in the process. So let's take a moment for reflection. We look at these religious leaders who totally cocked it up. They really made an example of themselves and showed their true colours. They thought they were so clever (laughs) They wanted to be judge, jury, and executioner. But Jesus pulled the rug from under their feet and made them see the truth of who they are and how appalling that was. 
And what I want to do is just to take a moment to reflect on this. Who are the people that, that we allow ourselves to stand in judgment of in life, in family, in church, in work, wherever we are? And we compare ourselves favorably to them because we know that they're, they're not really good people. And I'm, you know, if I was going to check some balances, I'm, I'm a bit better than they are. And we do it to make ourselves feel good. But, but should it? No. You know, we're, we're not called to, be, to judge people to make ourselves feel better or clever or superior. We're called to love our enemies, pray for those who persecute us. We're called to sacrificial love, not divisive one-upmanship. And I'm, I'm so guilty of this personally. It's so easy. I might do a little job at home and then sit down thinking, oh, I know other people who don't do anything around the house. How lucky Hannah must be to have me. You know, I put a spoon back in the drawer. Isn't it pathetic? I've got loads to do now, haven't I? Um, I'm sure we can all think of examples like this. So maybe this week, grab five or ten minutes and just take stock and reflect. Get a realistic idea of who you are in your own head. Coming to Jesus, thinking that you're worthy of him or his grace, is not a good starting point. The leaders came to Jesus arrogant and proud, and they ran away with their tails between their legs. The woman was dragged in a state of rock-bottom shame, but with a crystal-clear idea of her own failings. And Jesus met her where she was at. He protected her. He cared for her. Which of the two do you think came off better in the long run? So where are we? Ah, yes. Rotherham. So, Jesus is left alone with the woman. And isn't it interesting that as they leave, they leave eldest first. Two thoughts on this. They're old, they get tired. Probably not that. I think they leave eldest first because the ones who are the eldest have had the most time to build up things of which they're ashamed. They're the ones who recognise most quickly that they're not without sin. They're the people who have replaced God in their own lives with something else. Sin isn't just um, the bad stuff that we tell the kids in Sunday school not to do. It's, it's not less than that. But it's so much more. Sin really is when we choose something other than Jesus as the object of our worship and the person that we seek to please above all others. Getting that right is good news. How different would our lives, our relationships, our workplace, our politics, our economics and even our churches be if we really got that right? If God honouring sacrificial love Seeking after what is truly honourable and noble replaced self-serving, self-promoting, self-pleasing natural state of our human hearts today. And it is possible, not perfectly, but it's possible, but it's only possible through the acceptance of Jesus in our lives. Our sin and humanity's sin is what separated us from God all through the generations. Living lives that we know aren't quite even how we would want them to be, let alone God. Jesus deals with all that. He takes the punishment of the wrath of God for all that sin on himself, all the self-focus as he dies on the cross. He's broken by God so that we can be made whole. There will be punishment for sin, 
for all sin. The decision that we need to make is between who it is that will bear that punishment. Will it be Jesus on the cross or will it be me or you when you stand before God and give an account for your life of of self-love? Jesus freely offers himself for you and for me. John writes this gospel that we might believe that Jesus is the rescuer, the one who rescues from sin and death, and that we might have life in his name. So these devout, trained religious leaders were so drenched in sin that when Jesus, the bringer of life, stood before them, they had no answer for him, and they left in shame. When you stand before Jesus, don't be with them. Choose to follow Jesus today. And when you stand before him one day, be welcomed into his presence with great joy. So we've got those next words up. That's good. Thanks, Mo. So we're going to move to the the last two verses, John 8, 10 and 11. Uh, And we're nearly done. And I say that just to give you hope. So uh, John says, Jesus straightened up. So he's popped back up and he asks her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Well, what an amazing result in this passage. Where are they all? Is anyone going to condemn you, Jesus asks. They've all cleared off, she replies. No one's condemned me. And Jesus responds to that is that neither does he condemn her. Not because he's a sinner and isn't able to judge, but because at this point, he hasn't come yet as the judge of all the earth. But he still doesn't let her off, because sin is serious. All those men who dragged her in were bitten pretty hard by their conscience as Jesus spoke. Their conscience told them that what they'd done was wrong. Your conscience can't save you, but it is an indicator to us of sometimes when we do things wrong. But she knows she's a sinner. And Jesus' response to that is to challenge her to change. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. What a massive challenge that is. Does she take it up? It's not explicit, but I think the way the passage reads that she does. If Jesus couldn't see the desire to change that comes through faith in him, I think his closing words could have been very different. But this is also a massive challenge to us. Jesus says, go and sin no more. This should be our bread and butter as Christians. It should be my bread and butter. Go and sin no more. We're never going to achieve sinless perfection in this life. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and put effort towards it. The Christian life is a life centred on the gospel, the good news of Jesus, that he saves us from sin and brings us into God's family. But it's that same gospel that motivates us day by day in the journey of sanctification, the becoming more like Jesus. So, some days more than others. But if we need any encouragement to go and sin no more, it's to look at Jesus and see his example. He was sinless, but mixed with sinners, and he gave them the opportunity to be saved. He didn't stand above for fear of getting his perfection dirty. He got stuck in and allowed his perfection to interrupt our mess. We can't ruin his perfection, 
but he can interrupt our mess. So our last couple of words pop up on the screen. The leaders were bitten by their conscience, whereas the young girl was sent away by Jesus to change and live a life that would bring him glory and do her and others good. So, we've got our two columns of words, imagining that we're missing out all the oars. We've got two columns of words, one each side. One, full of self-seeking, self-serving, that ends in them being found out for who they really are, and they leave Jesus' presence, a sign of where that sort of life will lead to, a column of corruption that leads to death. Look at that. The other column is one of compassion, where Jesus uses himself to bring about a better tomorrow for the girl in the story. So choose today who your master will be. Will it be you, self-serving and seeking, or will it be the king of compassion? Will you take the crown of your life from your head and put it on Jesus' head? Who will call the shots in your life? Will you leave here to continue sinning, or will you go from here to sin no more? We can see in this passage that we, we become like what we worship. So, so, yeah, so I say to you and to me, choose an object, choose the object of your worship very wisely. If you're a Christian here today, check yourself and make sure you're worshipping Jesus. If you do, you'll become more like him, more caring, more compassionate, more loving. And if you're not somebody who identifies themselves with Jesus, then consider, consider the result of making that change today. Worship Jesus and see your life change with new eternal life and a perspective that lifts you from yourself to worship Jesus, that allows you to be wholly devoted to someone without being minimized or enslaved by it. Follow Jesus. He will bring you new life and liberty in himself, just like he did for the girl. So I want to leave you with this question. As you reflect on those two, chain, those two things, either the, the self-life or the compassion of Jesus, let me ask you, what about this Jesus? It's him or it's a life of worshipping something else. This Jesus, to me, seems like somebody that's worth worshipping. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that it never mattered what challenge or situation he was put in. He was true to you. He was true to, to, to the scriptures. And a life of following him is one of joy and of love and of fullness and of delight. Father, thank you that worshipping Jesus... It, it is good for us as well as it is good for you in bringing you glory. Father, thank you that, that that's just incredible. We can be totally devoted to you and that makes our lives more full, more joyful, 
more gracious. Father, help us to embrace that. Help us to embrace Jesus. Help us to to show that more in our own lives, in our church, in our workplaces, in our families, wherever we are. Father, help us to, to respond to you in faith and in love for you because of who you are and what you've done for us. Father, help us enjoy you. Amen.